This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Good evening. I'm Jamie Ucas. A massive police presence in Portland, Oregon today in anticipation of a violent confrontation. Several far-right groups held a rally while members of Antifa, a left-wing movement opposed to fascism, took to the streets at the same time. President Trump tweeted he was keeping a close eye on the demonstrations and can considered naming Antifa an organization of terror. We begin tonight with Jonathan Vigliotti in Portland. A city on edge as groups from the far right and far left took over downtown Portland. They come here um, to try and cause trouble and we don't want that trouble here. Protesters marched through the city's waterfront park. Mostly kept apart by heavy police presence. Portland's entire police department, nearly 1,000 officers, are all on duty today as they try to maintain peace here, making some arrests. Paul Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violis. Welcome to Security Matters, where your security matters most. I'm Paul Violis, and this is a CBS News radio production. Big thank you for everybody hitting us up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And yes, now even LinkedIn. All right. I'm waiting for everybody. I can hear it now. Right. The guy who doesn't like social media. It's not that I don't like social media. It's that I despise social media. But listen, you know, you can't fight it. This is how people are talking. Plus, you guys send me great stuff. I mean, I love the information you guys are sending and the comments on the shows. The information you've been you've been sending us on social media relative to the content and the subjects that the store the, the shows you want us to do. Listen, I can't thank you enough. So I'm a social media fan, I guess, in that respect. And also, remember everybody listening today, appreciate if you take less than sixty seconds. All right, just less than sixty seconds. Go to cbsaudio.com, go to the Security Matters page, and leave us a review. It's really important uh, for us as we continue to grow the show. And your opinion really does uh, mean an awful lot to me. So I'd appreciate that today. Protest or riot? Free speech or hate speech? Peaceful assembly or not? Antifa, friend or foe? And what do we in the United States have to do to prepare for groups like, let's just say, the white nationalists versus Antifa? What do police have to do? How much is it going to cost you? What do we need to do to prepare to keep you safe? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be joined by our own Bill Young, former Pennsylvania State Police Captain, SWAT Team Commander, and our tactical expert here on CBS News Radio. Bill's going to be joining us in a couple of minutes. But first, 
I want to lay out a couple of things so everybody kind of has an idea about what we're talking about when we talk about Antifa. Now, I want to preface my comments with this. I am in no way, shape, or form in any way condoning, supporting in any way, shape, or form white nationalists ever, ever, all right? As far as I'm concerned, they're right there with anti-Semitic people. They're right there with the Nazi party. They're wastes of human's breath. That's how I feel about it. However, let's not gloss over what we've done in this country by allowing certain groups that initially may have started with good intentions to voice their ability, of free, their, their right of free speech, to exercise their right to protest, which is part of the bedrock of our Constitution, and have turned into militant groups. And now, exactly, Antifa, I am talking about you, which I can't wait to hear the comments that's going to come from that. So let me just give you a little background on this so you know where I'm coming from before Bill comes on. Now, Antifa has expanded their definition of fascist and fat and fascist, uh, <clears throat> sorry, has expanded their definition of being fascists, uh, anti-fascism to include not just white supremacists, but other extremists, uh, but also many conservatives and supporters of, of President Trump. In fact, in Berkeley, for example, some Antifa members were captured on video harassing Trump supporters with no extremist connections. So when we think about, you know, Antifa, what you're all about, and really what your message is. Your message, for short, Antifa, short for anti-fascist. Their ideology rooted in the assumption that the Nazi party would never have been able to come to power in Germany if people had more aggressively fought them in the streets in the 20s and 30s. Is this new? Answer, no. Antifa movement began in the 1960s in Europe and had reached the U.S. by the end of the 1970s. So this is certainly nothing new. Right? So as we're talking right now, I want everyone to kind of picture what are we talking about? We're talking about this group called Antifa. Now, some people, some people have gone so far as to say they should be labeled as, they, as a terrorist group. Uh, so is Antifa a terrorist organization? Short answer, no. Why? If for no other reason that Antifa isn't really a group or an organization to begin with. That, however, doesn't mean that some who have adopted the ideological mantle of anti-fascism do not engage in terrorist or militant activity. We know this to be true. So anybody from Antifa that's listening, stop whining because we know this to be true. What do you call yourself when you show up all in black with masks and armed with various weapons and malicious gas? What do you call that? To me, ladies and gentlemen, that is not a peaceful assembly. So let's get rid of the opinion and let's go right to fact so that everyone understands. Clearly, we have a number of things going on here. Do American citizens have a constitutional right to free speech? Yes. Do they have a right to hate speech? Yes, quite frankly. Not that I, I like that, but it's constitutionally protected. When hate speech becomes something we need to act on is when that speech becomes actionable. We'll get to that. Do we have a right to protest? Yes, and we should continue to celebrate our right to protest. But, ladies and gentlemen, that means peaceful assembly. But what is the process? The process is that when a group like an Antifa, like the, the White Patriarch Party, whoever, KKK, whoever these people out there are, when they want to 
when they want to protest at a particular event or at a time and a location, they have to go to the municipality and they have to file a permit and the permit has to be approved and it has the date, the time, the time frame, the location, the intent, the number intending, a variety of other things. Now in there, it very clearly states what they can and can't do and what the differences are or the disparity between uh, what a peaceful protest and peaceful assembly is and what is not. Now, when Bill comes, I'm going to ask Bill to explain how we plan for that. But so that we're all on the same page, peaceful assembly does not give you the right to damage someone's property. Who the hell do you think you are? I mean, seriously. I've watched things across our country where people set fire to home fronts uh, or uh, storefronts. Now, you know what? That guy who's got that small business, he's working six, seven, uh, seven days a week. She's in there in the early morning until late at night. And they're coming home to the kitchen table and they're trying to figure out what bills they're going to pay. And you think you have the right to set their things on fire? Answer, no, you don't. They're property damage, personal injury, assaulting police and first responders does not come under peaceful assembly. So if you think you have the right because you're upset, you do not have that right. You will never have that right. So that we're on the same page. I can't wait to hear the comments coming back from that. I embrace it. I can't. I want to hear it. Challenge me on that. Because it doesn't go with it. When you file a permit, there are parameters. Those parameters have to, and I mean have to, be adhered to. With that, I bring in, as I mentioned before, Bill Young. Bill is, is a retired captain of the Pennsylvania State Police. He's someone I consider a very dear friend. He is a, uh, a SWAT team. He was a SWAT team commander. He is our tactical expert here uh, at Security Matters and, and one of the, our, our SWAT team and tac, police tactical experts at CBS News Radio. Bill, thanks for joining. Great to be here, Paul. So, Bill, let's just jump into this, all right? I, I, what I want is I want our, our audience, I want all of our great listeners to understand, as I've given them a little bit of the background here about what we're talking about. Okay, so there's a difference between protest and riot. We understand this free speech. We understand that there's peaceful assembly, but... There's a line in the sand. Now, from the moment, let's take it from the moment that the municipality passes or approves that permit for peaceful assembly. How do police prepare for that? The preparation should even start before that, Paul, because it takes a, a very large amount of coordination, manpower, resources, and money to make sure you can respond to these types of events appropriately in the safest, safest way possible. So the training, the education, and the coordination among all the police officers that are required to respond to these types of calls is something that has to happen well in advance. And uh, it includes training, acquisition of equipment, education about things like what are our uh, what is our operating procedures, how do we respond, and, and rules of engagement, use of less lethal force. And the concept that we refer to as a mobile field force, which includes a lot of different aspects about how police respond to large crowds and civil disorder. All right. So, so Bill, let's look at it this way. I'm going to give you a brief analogy. So, you know, former Pennsylvania State Police, obviously one of the most well-respected state police organizations in all of the United States and the world, no question. You had a lot of smaller municipalities that, that you assisted across the great state of Pennsylvania. And I'm sure that not all of them had officers that were 
uh, that had the ability to be professionally trained in, you know, mobile field force or had the equipment. How would you handle something like that? Well, the state police in Pennsylvania is able to step in and respond in a number of different ways and to different degrees. And, and a good example of that was the G20 summit that was held in Pittsburgh in 2009. And, and the Pennsylvania State Police provided about a thousand officers to help uh, provide for safety and security during that event, which was over several days. Now, let's, let's break down preparedness into the following areas. Let's start with intelligence gathering. How do police gather intelligence on the different groups uh, that are going to be protesting at a particular event? That's a good question. And really, when you think about the importance of the intel function, and it's this, because if you can understand the mindset or the motivation for some of the, the groups that will be there, it can help to minimize the risks. And that goes into how you're going to deploy your personnel, your resources, and your assets when and where. But the intelligence part of that is something that, again, is ongoing. It even happens well in advance of these types of events. But it involves people. It involves technology and networking. And so, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail about how that works. But uh, needless to say, the use of uh, technology and manpower to try to identify motivations and what potential targets might be is going to be a very important aspect about how you plan and respond to civil disorder incidents. No question. So, so let's, let's, use, let's use this as an example. You, you've got an event like we've seen in Portland recently, and we saw in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, and we've seen across the United States, where the, the, the white nationalists, the skinheads, the KKK crew, uh, they're going to show up. And at the same time, you know that Antifa is going to show up. So now, as, as a tactical expert, this is what you know right now. You've gathered the intelligence on both. Uh, you have an idea based on the intelligence of how many. You're, you're guessing, of course, but you know how many are going to be there, and you're, you're piecing that together. Uh, before you staff that, or as you staff that, here's a great question that I'd love to hear answered, in, and I know that our, our listeners would as well. Where's the money come from, Bill? Well, <laughs> That's a good question. Sometimes that's an unknown. Uh, sometimes the federal government may support uh, financially to it, depending on whether there's a federal nexus. Uh, but the problem is many times that the uh, police agencies don't have money allocated within our budget for these types of large scale, especially a spontaneous event. Just take, for example, a celebratory ride following a uh, like an NFL championship game or okay. some sort of uh, uh, professional sporting event. And, and so you, you don't have money budgeted for that. But we understand preservation, like preservation of property is still what we do as police officers. So you still got to deploy and mobilize your assets. So that is something that puts police departments, municipalities in, in difficult positions because you can't really budget and anticipate for these types of events. So an example like, like a Ferguson, where all of a sudden now you've got mass chaos going, you've got property damage, you have people being assaulted. Uh, that's a spontaneous event, right? So we saw at that point, we saw the state police get involved in Missouri there. Uh, and that leads me to the staffing part of how police prepare for, let's say, as an example, when the white nationalists start going head-to-head -head with Antifa. 
when you start staffing this bill, um, are you using patrol officers? Are you using tactical personnel? Are you using both? I mean, give us an idea of everyone that is brought to bear to protect a community for something like that. Well, you know, what's most visible, and we, we see it on the news or on the Internet or, or, or whatever, you see the formations of police in uniform. And, of course, many times that's, that can be a large number of police personnel and assets. So that in and of itself, that part of what we refer to as mo- mobile field force, takes a lot of people. And uh, what sometimes isn't visible or people don't know is there's a whole slew of additional supporting elements units, task forces that are required to make sure that these uh, civil unrest incidents get handled appropriately. We talked about the intelligence part of it. It takes a lot of people to work the intelligence piece and make sure that the commanders have the information in a timely manner and it gets disseminated and used appropriately. Think about the investigative tasks involved with civil unrest incidents. You still need officers that can handle interviews, collection of evidence, preparation of reports, search warrants and affidavits, probable cause for, for arrest warrants, and all that. So that's very manpower intensive. Then you, you factor in the other pieces of this, for instance, assets like uh, specialty units, canines, SWAT, aviation assets. Um, it becomes the most, tasking, most difficult task for police in regards of money, time, and, and deployment of, of personnel. How do you decide what type of equipment to deploy to uh, an event that, let's just say, police realize is foreseeable, it's going to move from peaceful assembly to riot? How do you use, how do you decide what type of equipment and what type of equipment has been deployed from basic to advanced? Well, some of the things that have been effective are uh, what we would refer to as some less lethal options or less lethal munitions. Because... As you stated earlier, the police have no issue with peaceful assembly. They certainly support the right freedom to speech and and are sworn to uphold the Constitution. But there has to be a way to deal with uh, large crowds of people when things change and they start to become, break the law, start to cause property damage or whatever. So uh, there are tools, less lethal tools that can be chemical agents. The use of noise to disperse crowds might be a tactic and a piece of equipment that would be used to uh, effectively disperse crowds and quell disturbances without having to to make arrests. And then you eventually you may have to make arrests. And so there's a lot of equipment that might be used to uh, detain large, you know, make mass arrests and be able to detain large groups of people. So there's a lot of specialized equipment that can be acquired and used uh, to deal with these types of incidents. Most of it's very costly. Now, we've heard time and time again, especially when things have turned into riots in Baltimore and Ferguson, and I can go on and on, um, where you know, community members would feel, I don't know how they would categorize it, as, you know, frightened or offended, when you know, law enforcement has to come up with certain types of vehicles. I remember when, um, when we were covering Ferguson, where you know, a tank was used in that particular situation. Now, what type of vehicles would you estimate could be used and why would they be used? 
Well, the, the first, I think what we're referring to here is, is what I call a tactical rescue vehicle. It's a, normally you'll see this type of vehicle deployed during a SWAT operation. And the real idea behind these types of vehicles is to rescue people. They provide ballistic protection. They're mobile. They're portable. You can move personnel in them, and you can remove people that are in dangerous, dangerous areas. So that would be one type of vehicle that would be used. When you think about mass crowds and maybe mass arrests, you're going to need additional vehicles, vans for arrests and booking purposes. You need to remain mobile because even though we, we talk about the images of police in, in lines and formations being the most visible, one of the most important aspects of responding to uh, civil unrest is the ability to be mobile and move quickly. So you still have to have quick reaction teams in vehicles that can move one, one spot to another quickly to quell disturbances or, or things that might cook off. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, again, the deployment, the preparation, right, to, to recap real quick, and uh, we're, we're talking about the intelligence gathering and, and then once we have the intelligence gathering bill, then, then you're going to go ahead and, and staff this out. Now you're going to, based on what the, the, the foreseeability of risk is and the intel that you have on the groups that you feel were going to be there, that also tells you about what type of force that you may have to deploy, then you're going to staff that out. Once you staff it out, and in staffing it out, you're also deciding what type of equipment you're going to need. And in doing that, you have to make sure that the people that are going to be deployed are properly trained. And then once you place this package together, then you got to figure out who's going to pay for it. Is that pretty accurate so far? Yes, sir. Okay. So now let's take it to the training side, which I have always found to be fascinating because what, and I'd love to hear you kind of share this with our listeners, but what a lot of people don't really appreciate when they see the line of officers in riot gear with protective helmets and face wear and whatever type of impact weapon that they're going to have in, on their person at that particular time, in addition to everything else, right? Um, describe, because you've been there, describe to our listeners from a police perspective, what's that like with respect to having to withstand verbal abuse objects being thrown at them. Tell us what that's like. Uh, it's very difficult, and it takes a great degree of training and discipline on the part of the officers as well as the commanders. And so that's why this is something that can't be uh, just something that the police respond to without a lot of pre-planning, a lot of education, a lot of training, because they have to understand what the situation will be like. It could be rocks. It could be Molotov cocktails. It could be bullets like we've seen. Uh, and, and one of the keys to a successful mobile field force is the ability for the force to stay intact. And so that takes a great degree of training, a great degree of discipline, even under the stress of situations like you described where you're being pummeled and uh, knowing that there are tactics in place to deal with that. And there's a there's a, a comprehensive or a, a cohesive plan in place to make sure that the commanders and the and the officers on the ground know when it's time to shift tactics from a mere presence to trying to disperse crowds to now deploying a less lethal uh, device or making an arrest. 
Now, oftentimes we hear people say and make the comments when we, we watch these horrible events unfold on television and we listen to it, you know, here on CBS News Radio, we, we, a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, a lot of our viewers here at CBS, a lot of them say, you know, uh, why are they taking that? Why, why are they taking that abuse? Um, how would you respond to that? A, a, lot of, a lot of things go into the decision-making. And uh, the commanders, now keep in mind you have these groups of officers on the ground in these formations. And one of the key components to this is a span of control. So for every so many officers, you have to have a supervisor. And for every uh, so many squads, you have a platoon and commanders in charge of the platoons. And then you have area commands with commanders in charge of that. So you have to, make, again, make sure everybody's on the same operating principles. But at some point, a supervisor on the line or a commander will make the decision for the line to hold fast because it's not the, the time and opportunity isn't there yet for them to do what they want to do. So it may be that uh, they have to just hold fast and in hopes that uh, as time passes, there'll be a better opportunity for them to engage some sort of some sort of tactic to either make an arrest or disperse the crowd. Generally speaking, though, once those types of actions occur where you're committing a crime, potentially causing harm or property damage, the police are going to start to put plans together to make arrests and, and disperse crowds and prevent that from happening any further. Now, we've seen, Bill, you and I, I mean, we've seen incidents unfold across our great country that, you know, I mean, to me, I can, I'm just speaking for myself, you know, I think are sickening. When, again, we see the peaceful assembly turn violent, when we see hate speech turn into actionable hate, when we see protests turn into riots, and you've got police set up, you've got the equipment set up, you've got the mobile command center sent in the back, and you've got law enforcement at the ready, and they're standing there taking whatever verbal abuse or things that, that are being casted at them. But then all of a sudden, you start to see fires set. Like we saw in a variety of different situations where storefronts were set on fire or people picking up trash cans and throwing them through windows. Um, is, are these actionable at this point for police to get involved? And if so, what type of force would you, would anyone that's involved in that should expect police to respond with? Well, now we're talking about the, the, the life safety issues here. And when you start burning vehicles, tipping vehicles, burning dumpsters, burning furniture, hurling couches on fire out second to third story windows like we've seen. Now we're talking about serious bodily injury, potentially death to people. And so the police have to take immediate actions. And at some point, like we talked about, there may be a decision to hold fast if you're just being attacked with verbal barrages. But at some point, somebody makes a decision that, hey, now we have to take immediate actions. It has to be firm, decisive, but appropriate, considering the law and the Constitution, to save the lives of people. And it could be citizens, it could be the police officers themselves. But at some point, the supervisors and the commanders make that decision. Take us through, as we close, take us through what, those, what that use of force looks like. I mean, from moving the crowd back to whatever force might be necessary. What's that look like? 
Well, if a, if a crowd fails to disperse, there's going to be an action by what we would call an arrest team. And you're going to see a group of officers that, you know, and, and typically this is what you'll do. If you have a, an angry mob, it makes it very difficult to make simultaneous mass arrests. So police officers are going to try to identify the worst offenders. And the police officers will approach and circle and take into custody the worst offenders and take actions. Again, immediate actions for preservation of life. So when we look at the totality of this risk, we, we, we look at it as we would the use of force matrix. We look at it in really scales of or levels of whatever type of risk is being presented for life safety, for damage to property, certainly to officer safety. And then police will then deploy based on whatever is being presented to them. Accurate? Yes, sir. Okay. So as we close, Bill... Um, you know, and, and, and for everybody to understand, again, as we kind of recap from today, which is really, really important, because what we need to understand as a country is that we are a nation of laws, and there are clear laws and there are clear administrative rules in every municipality. So every single person listening right now, wherever you live, there are rules, there are administrative rules in place right now in your municipality about how you would apply for a permit to protest for peaceful assembly. That is in place. And, and to recap, it's an application. And, and, and it, you're gonna have to spell out the date, the time, the time frame, the location, the intent, the numbers attending, a variety of things. That information, once that's approved, that information is gonna go to the police. The police are gonna conduct intelligence to ascertain and to validate what the foreseeable risk is. And as Bill has been sharing with us, it's at that point that they're going to break down the from that intelligence, the staffing that will be required, the training of those officers, the equipment that they need on the ready, and overall what it's going to cost, who's going to fund it, and getting everything in place before something happens. That's if, as Bill pointed out, that's if we know in advance. If it's a spontaneous event, like you, Bill, like you were mentioning, like you know, after a sporting event, or even after. You know, a bad, a, a, you know, a, 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 a controversial court decision like a Ferguson or, or a, a police action or something like that, that now we have community going against police. Then, of course, if communities don't have uh, the, the staff, then that's when you're going to see the state police or even, Bill, right? Even what? The, the National Guard that could come in in a situation like that. That's right. So, if, if you were to leave, as we close today, Bill, if you were to leave a message for all of our listeners uh, as it relates to um, police preparedness, but overall, the message that we want to send right now uh, relative to how we, hear, how we support peaceful assembly, but what people should expect if they turn that into a violent action, what would be your word of advice to people that are on the fence right now? as to, um, you know, thinking about going down this road? Uh, here's what I would say, Paul. We understand that a majority of these uh, protests are peaceful, and, and a majority of the people that are participating have peaceful intentions. But we also know that when there's masses of people involved, there is a criminal element that will exploit the opportunity to get into the large crowd in hopes of being anonymous to commit their crimes or send their message. And so what can happen many times in these large mobs is this mob 
mindset can become contagious. Mob actions can become contagious. And people can feel like there's safety in numbers or safety in the fact that they can remain anonymous. So I would say to the peaceful demonstrators, be very careful that you don't get sucked into these types of mob actions, these contagion uh, of, of violent actions, and start to cross over from what would be a peaceful demonstration to something that would be unlawful. Sage advice, my friend, and I hope everybody listens to that. As we close, we have a constitutional right, and it's one we should celebrate for freedom of speech and peaceful assembly, and we should continuously celebrate that, and we should exercise it. But for everyone listening, remember this. Even if your intent is to be peaceful, but you are joining with a group that has violent tendencies, you are placing yourself in harm's way. You can be injured, or worse, you could clearly go to jail. You need to ask yourself, is this the group you really wanna be associated with? Because everything that we laid out right now, these are things that you can expect. Bill, really appreciate it as always. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Young, who's our tactical expert here at Security Matters and, and, and one of our subject matter experts at CBS News Radio. Uh, on behalf of everybody here at Security Matters, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Remember, hit us up on social media. Let us know the subjects, like today's, that you wrote in about, that you want to know more about, and we're happy to do it. So on behalf of everybody here, have a great week. Be safe. Be well. God bless. Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.